Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Kim Phillips and John Spurlock. Kim is a medievalist and associate professor in history at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. John is an Americanist and professor of history at Seton Hill University in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Both are well-published historians of sexuality with an interest in youth. Notably, Kim teamed up with Barry Ray to write Sex Before Sexuality, a pre-modern history, in 2011, from Polity Press. John just came out with Youth and Sexuality in the 20th Century United States, from Rutledge. I brought them together in December 2015 for a conversation about their work and to address foundational questions in the history of sexuality. I hope you'll find this conversation as thought-provoking as I did. Take care. Well, John and Kim, thank you for agreeing to uh, join me for a conversation on childhood history and and critique about your work and about the history of sexuality and and youth. I, I thought maybe we'd just start out by having each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves. Okay, well, I guess... Uh, my intellectual journey, I guess I came to the history of sexuality through women's history, first and foremost, uh, with my PhD years doing a, a project, a, a thesis on young women in late medieval England. That's where the interest in, in youth came in, though I've been interested in women's history since I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so medieval women was almost like my primary research subject area. Uh, you really can't study medieval women without coming upon sexuality pretty quickly. Sexuality really informed medieval cultures' perceptions of what it meant to be feminine. Okay, so I was looking at young women. Young women, obviously, they're um, they're meant to be virgins because they're not married yet, and yet they are deemed to be sexually attractive, you know, nubile. Um, they're at an age that's highly, or that was highly valued um, aesthetically and, and you know, idealized within the culture. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're not actively sexual. They're not supposed to be. I'm sure many of them were uh, premaritally, but they're not meant to be actively sexual, but they are still defined in terms of uh, their sexual appeal. And then once I became a university lecturer here at um, University of Auckland, um, my colleague Barry Ray knocked on my door uh, one morning when I was still a relatively young lecturer and said, hey, let's teach a course on the history of sexuality together. So this is back in 1998. 
And so we devised a course, and uh, it's called Sexual Histories, and we've been teaching it together. We've taught it every year without fail since 1999. So we've taught many, many hundreds. I guess it's now thousands of young New Zealand students about the history of sexuality, starting with the ancient Greeks, going through the medieval period and early modern, and, uh, and then right through the modern period leading right up to the present day. So it's, it's a very uh, broad brush kind of survey course. And that's led us into some collaborative writing projects as well. We, we edited a, a reader of key essays in the history of sexuality some years ago, and we used that in our teaching. And we also wrote a book together on uh, medieval and early modern sexuality called Sex Before Sexuality. So they're the main, that's, I guess, the main parts of my History. That's interesting. So both, I, I just think of when you when you said you you can't come up, you can't study medieval women or you know women's life course without dealing with sex. And I, I, yeah. I think about the key words in English, uh-huh. in in Middle English and in Early Modern English around precisely that the difference between a maid and a and a mistress or right. Whereas right. For, and and it and not that sex is not important for men, but the other, the or distinguishing categories of men, but for men, the chief ones being separating men by property. Uh, mm. that, yeah, right. You know, right. and 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 obviously, property is incredibly important for women. I'm not, but the language sure. is matter, and yeah. it's right there. And the, right, right, the maid, wife, widow uh, way of categorizing women was was just you know profoundly part of that culture. Relative yeah. to sex and med- and, and and marriage. That's, that's right, yeah, that's right. And the two go hand in hand, obviously, for that period. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, John, you're in uh, Greensburg, right, Pennsylvania? Yep, and uh, University. So um, much like Kim, I, uh, I got into this uh, in, in my uh, Ph.D. research. I had an interest in this, this odd uh, development in the middle of the 19th century known as the free love movement. And uh, what little had been written about it had, I, I thought, was not very satisfactory. So, you know, I followed that, and it was in major part a history of anti-marriage ideology in, in uh, the 19th century in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly I had to immerse myself in the way that uh, the, the, that culture, which was uh, going through some, some interesting uh, changes, was, was talking about sex, sexuality. The The next project after that was was one that uh, um, uh, women's history was uh, dealing with, with women through their life course from um, adolescence, not their entire life course, but from adolescence to uh, middle age, uh, the U.S. in the early 20th century. In doing that, <clears throat> I, I came upon what seemed to me something that was uh, anomalous in the, the literature. There, there seemed to be uh, at a at a point well after most uh, historians had said that the uh, the possibility for the kind of warm relationships among women that um, you know Carol Smith Rosenberg talked about after the period when those had been foreclosed, I found that adolescent women seem to be acting, you know, very much the way their late 19th century uh, counterparts mm-hmm. had been acting. They they uh, they talked about, uh, in, in many cases, other women in, in ways that were emotionally very you know, 
vibrant in from their personal writings, it seemed like this was something that in some cases at least was, you know, physically expressive too. So that little problem kept working on me. And I, after that, that book was published, uh, I, I just kept uh, pecking away and pecking away. And, um, you know, I, I think I met uh, uh, Pat uh, because of that book, but, yeah. you know, we, we, we uh, um, had a panel together, but it was at really that time that I was still kind of developing this idea. And as I, as I, kind of push that research both back and forward, I, I ultimately decided I needed some kind of an explanation of adolescent or youthful sexuality in the U.S. for the whole 20th century, you know, to make sense of this this one uh, thing that seemed at the time to me to be so strange. So that's, that's how I came to this latest project. Um, I mean, Pat and I think I think I, our, our uh, panel was way back in 2002. Yeah. So th- this project has taken a lot longer than you know maybe any uh, uh, historian moving at a normal speed would take. But it's it finally is uh, came to publication this uh, this last August. And the title is "Youth and Sexuality in 20th Century United States." Yeah. Right. Well, can- congratulations on that, John. It's, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you stuck with it and and brought it to fruition for everybody yeah. to benefit from. Yeah, I'm very happy, but I have to admit, I'm also kind of relieved. It's a <laughs> sounds like a big project. Well, you'd be surprised at how short a book came out of all that research. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that's the direction of things, isn't it? There are, right. That's right. I mean, yeah. how many pub- how many publishers are willing to publish 800 books? Page books, right? Or okay. yeah. if you're Ian Kershaw, you know, maybe they'll sign you up. But yeah, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for that. But I don't think it's really what they're looking for. Yeah, I think you're right. So we we have a lot of diversity uh, between the two of you in that we have a 19th and 20th century historian uh, of, of of the United States and uh, a, a historian of medieval England, and uh, bo- bo- both with really broad interests about sexuality and both have uh, thought a lot about the life course, peer relations, and other things that are very germane to the history of youth. So I want to get a discussion going across that diversity, across that gap, and it's not something that I think we usually do. We're more comfortable, particularly in terms of period, I think maybe mm-hmm. more than anything else, more than geography or language or even subject matter or uh, genres or subfields, period is very difficult to cross. Yeah. Yeah. But if <laughs> if historians can't do that, you know, who can? <laughs> yeah. um, right. Because sure. not being able to cross periods would uh, sort of be anti, I think, to our larger disciplinary project, wouldn't it? Um, so that's one reason I've asked you to, to come together and I to really discuss some foundational questions. And I've shared them with you in, a, in advance, and we can go off script, uh, but I'll start sort of with the script, and we'll just see what happens. Kim, what, in the, this is the broadest question I think I could start with. 
Okay. What do you make? What have you made? How have you handled the term and concept of sexuality historically? Okay. Uh, well, I guess for me, studying history of sexuality is all about emphasizing diversity and change. I guess those would be the the terms that I would keep coming back to. Um, thinking about the ways that human cultures in different parts of the world in different periods of time all subject to their own social, economic, political, cultural pressures and norms, you know, how they form their, uh, their norms, if you like, their, uh, their rules, if you like, their cultural rules around sexuality and um, seeing how uh, one compares with another. So you're talking a moment ago about needing to think transhistorically, get out of, particular periods, I think that's actually really helpful for history of sexuality because the more you can uh, acknowledge change and um, difference, not only across cultures but across different historical periods, the more you can appreciate that diversity in human sexuality across time. So that those would be the key terms for me. So thinking about how human cultures construct sexualities in diverse ways at different times in history. That resonates yeah. with me. Can I, just to follow up, is, is yeah. the obvious parallel that I have used, and, and this resonates with me in terms of dealing with students and explaining the historical project, is that this is parallel to the anthropological right. project of, of understanding that however you're living isn't the way it has to be. Right. And right. human beings are capable of a lot of possibilities. So do you feel like that, that part of it is that sense of diversity? Definitely. And diversity not just in place but over time. That's right. And we too uh, in our teaching, we also have made use of the same analogy you know, to think of, of history as a, a branch of anthropology, if you like. Uh, and I think students, are once they're thinking about history in that way, it's easier for them to click into that mindset of, accepting diversity and not expecting to find uh, our own cultural practices and norms in cultures that are part of part of our our western tradition if you like you know so um, it might be uh, easier for some students to think well you know what they do in new guinea you know is going to be different from what you do in new york city you know say but you can emphasize that okay but what they did in you know 5th century Athens, 5th century BC Athens was also profoundly different from what you do in New York City um, or what they did in 18th century London. And, you know, so start uh, emphasizing that uh, those discontinuities, um, you know, it's always so important to to recognize that there will be similarities and continuities across history. But we we find it most productive to to emphasize difference. Um, And the anthropological model just helps kind of uh, introduce that way of thinking very, very well. Yeah. John, you know, how would uh, you build on that? Well, yeah, I, I just wanted to comment that um, in reading uh, Kim's book, you know, Sex Before Sexuality, it's, it's a very, it, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I found so um, pleasing about it is 
to see them point out to historians who many of them are no smarter than I am, you know, <laughs> that they're, they're, um, they, they struggle with this, uh, idea of sexuality. And, and I think one of the problems that we face is, um, trying to talk about something and having to not use the terms that we're comfortable with. Right. And, right. and then once you put those to the side, what do you do? It's, it, right. it becomes, and, and so your, your chapters, your sub, you, you know, each chapter would, would kind of unpack, uh, something that is in, in some sense a comfort, you know, so, you know, we, right. we, um, uh, you know, we have these these big, you know, scary terms like heterosexuality. But if if you, you're looking at it historically, suddenly it it just doesn't it just doesn't quite hold together quite the same way. But, but you know, particularly you know from from the the uh, the various uh, time periods you were looking at there was a uh, I thought it was a, a really a, a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know you. One of the things you, you pointed out, which is which I have found to be true, is that as we get toward the end of the 19th century, there's this just mm-hmm. urge, this rapid urge to just put people into these, you know, categories that. But even in the 20th century, I find that the, that uh, the you know the categories aren't quite matter uh, to the way people live their lives. Um, okay. You know when I would talk to uh, people about the, you know, these young women I uh, uh, mentioned to you. There's a real tendency to say, oh, well, they were lesbian or they were lesbian for a little while or something like that. But that's unlike what these young women would have thought about themselves. It wouldn't have, mm-hmm. you know, in a culture where it was so pervasive to say that, oh, you, you know, you have this particular, you know, sexuality, which we can define right. in this way. We just, they 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 would have had a hard time with that i think yeah. there's a there's a line i'd like to read from kim and barry's book uh that that's exactly what you're talking about i love this line i wrote it down because i it's a simple it's a simple comment but it's it's from page 42 of that book one of the great problems with the history of heterosexuality and the entire chapter is is problematizing the history of heterosexuality mm-hmm. uh one of the great problems with the history of heterosexuality is that we all think we know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the next sentence is, they, this is paraphrasing them and, and grabbing the key, the key phrase in the next couple of sentences is, what if the very ordering of desire, which is a, an important way to define sexuality in a historically open way, what if the very ordering of desire was historical? Mm-hmm. And that's a, a sort of opening up. That line really grabbed me. Yeah. I think I might have to give Barry credit for that line. You know, <laughs> I think he might have been responsible for that, that couple of sentences there. Yeah. Well, you right. see people, people are paying attention and mm-hmm. writing things down. <laughs> yeah. A term like sexuality itself, much like childhood, has mm-hmm. a, a really strong essentializing force. Right. But it's not so easy as historians to get outside of that force. But we can't suddenly stop being modern 20th century thinkers. Sure. Um, but how, if you could talk just a little bit about how 
your historical re research has helped you confront and think about the essentializing force of something like sexuality as a concept. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear about that. Um, we have to really pay attention to the way that in whatever period we're looking at, how they described sex and, and sexual desire and sexual behavior rather than reading their words and thinking, oh, what they mean is X or what they mean is Y. I was just thinking about the medieval period. You know, the, probably the most important thing to do straight away is just leave aside the whole question of sexual identity. Whether mm. we end up coming back to that later, I'm not sure. I haven't seen any really compelling reasons for for going back to the notion of sexual identity in, uh, when we're thinking about the medieval period, but, you know, we should always leave doors open. Um, but when you're looking at the Middle Ages, you need to think about their concerns, not our concerns, and sexual identity is a concern that arises out of period from the late 19th century on, the rise of psychiatry, psychology, um, sexual categories um, that were developed by uh, Kraft Ebbing and others writing around that time, Havelock Ellis and so on. Um, so if you put all of that aside and then you look at medieval people and what they said and wrote about sexuality, then you get to recognise that they don't have a concept of homosexuality or, or heterosexuality indeed or lesbianism or, or any of our, our modern sexual categories. So how do they think about diverse kinds of sexual behaviour? So same-sex acts between men or between women, yes, they are counted as sinful, but so are a whole lot of sex acts between men and women, mm -hmm. um, so long as they... Uh, are not what was called natural. A natural means it can be they're procreative. You know they, they have the possibility in, in resulting in conception. So any unnatural, non-procreated sex, no matter who it's between, or it might be solitary. You know, <laughs> masturbation could count as, as an example of that too. Any uh, unnatural sex. I want to jump in and and um, one of the things I found very interesting, Kim, in the book again was that uh, pecking order of sexual sin that yeah. you provided with right. with sort of things like masturbation pretty pretty high up and some of these right. other things like you know um um you know or or uh sex out you know so uh, an ordering that really takes apart what i, I think uh an ordinary um you know uh, person in, in the middle of the 20th century would have would have uh, you know, how they yeah. would have seen sexual sin or sexual right. deviance, to use a, a yeah. 20th century term. Sure. And, and, yeah. and part of the reason might be because there are existing popular narratives about what traditional sexual morality in the church, for example, is. Right. And those dominant narratives aren't very historically sound, not just from a not from a church, pro-church or anti-church perspective. Sure. They're just not good church history. Right, right. Even if we were giving, you know, priority to what the theologians are saying, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the high Middle Ages on into the early modern period, they're not accurate. You right. know, a lot of the present day, I'm thinking about the big institutional uh, positions of the Catholic Church, for example. When I read a lot of those positions, they sound pretty 19th century to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in terms right. of the inner logic and concern. Yeah. 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 
So that's part of the value of, of, of studying or writing history of sexuality is realizing how recent a lot of we think of as the Western tradition of, of morality around sex, uh, how recent a lot of that is. Yeah. Yeah. John, something that you're, that I think your work confronts is self-writing, diaries. Mm-hmm. You're, you're such a sensitive reader of women's self-writing. You have been in a number of uh, different works and self-narrative. That also takes us right to the cusp of this relationship between representation and self, right? And in that, mm-hmm. dealing with self-writing in a historical way presents, I think, some challenges. And how have you experienced that and, and dealt with the authority of the self in in mm. those in that way. If I'm if I'm I'm not framing it very well as a question, but I think you know what I I think you know what I mean in terms of a dilemma of reading, a problem of reading. Well, thanks, Pat. I, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the compliment. These you know these documents are, are to, to me they're fascinating and and I think they they really are very useful. I, I think self writing is in is the project of, of creating the self. You have these these uh, adolescent women who are, you know, white middle class is, is the typical stereotype. I mean, um, the women who were, you know, they had those, the, the literacy skills and also the, the, the time to, to do that. And uh, in the 20th century, of course, more and more of these women are getting uh, education beyond just the elementary level. It, you you see you see young women again and again starting a diary about age 12 or so. In many cases, they'll start out and say, well, I'm just going to record the good stuff. You know, it's just the, the high points of my life. Within pages, they're talking about horrible things emotionally, you know. That, and I think that's, that's fundamental, that they, they really are, in a sense, working through these things visibly for us. I can't imagine they would think they would sit down to it and say, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to uh, turn myself into somebody or I've got to become more integrated as a person. But that's really what they're trying to do. And, and fortunately, from time to time, they'll talk about a movie they saw or a book magazine that they read and and how they use that to understand the, the world around them. And then, you know, as occasionally something that they do in the classroom has some impact on that. That's typically not very prominent until they get into college, if they're still keeping a diary at that point. And as you're describing the, the sort of mechanisms that are like diary is a practice, right? It's a particular practice located in time. It develops over time. It, it has technologies associated with it yeah. and the access, accessibility of obviously of the building of literacy and other things. But there is undergirding that an attempt to find the essence of the person, right? Mm-hmm. Through the production of the self, but that mm-hmm. that itself was a historical project yeah. and yeah. is not, transcendent right. you don't have to argue so much with whether or not they're making it up because everything is made up from at least the perspective i would bring yeah you know? yeah it's that you know it's that that turn toward the novel that we get sort of you know at right at the, the end of the medieval period into the early that's modern right. period the novel this very term means something that's that's novel that's new yeah um so you know you have these these stories that are, um, 
you know, like Don Quixote. Yeah, I'm thinking of Cervantes, this whole, exactly. This whole apparatus telling you this, everything that follows here is a falsehood, a very elaborate falsehood. <laughs> but that falsehood then gives us this character who is so, um, so distinctive. And so, you know, I mean, he's iconic, really, in, in uh, Western culture. That project, and of course, you know, I don't, I, I can't make a claim for medieval times, but mm-hmm. that project of, of self-creation becomes so prominent, so common. And, and here, by the time we get to the 19th century, at least, at latest, it's, it's spread to, to, to young girls and, and, and boys too. It's just, I don't, I, I haven't in my career, haven't had as much access to, to boys journals and, and diaries. Just listening to you, John, I was just thinking how jealous I am of you with your source base that you have to work with there, you know, having access to young women's diaries. You know, when I was writing my book on on young women, pre-marital women in, in late medieval England, you know, I, in terms of thinking about women's, young women's own perspectives on their world, how they felt about themselves, mm-hmm. uh, their, their responses to... Um, the, the 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 pressure to conform to certain gender norms that they were under. There's just almost nothing to go on. <laughs> there's a couple yeah. of books from very late in the period, but there's there's certainly no diaries. You know that kind of private writing just for yourself. I mean that 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 is ex- an extraordinary uh, kind of source to be able to deal with. And uh, but I guess that also opens up a bigger question thinking about the history of sexuality, and that is source materials. Mm-hmm. And so often for the pre-modern era, it's just a fact of life. We are dependent on normative sources, prescriptive yeah. sources or legal sources, uh, rather than material that will really take us to the heart of individuals and what they're feeling and, right. and how they are composing their own desires for themselves you know and it leaves us with such a dilemma i mean so much of historical work is about the history of the creation of the self right and what do we make of limitations in terms of change over time in source availability things that are lost Mm -hmm. and how much do we read into the fact that that diary writing as a form isn't an important cultural form in the 13th right. century, right? Right. right. So well, you mentioned so, technology. And yeah, you mentioned technology, and you just think about um, these diaries. Uh, how much paper is required? And it's 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 the case. Even even well into the 19th century, people didn't have access to that much paper. You, yeah. you know, if if you look at the uh, the the papers of, of prominent people, you'll see that they're reusing pages. They'll take letters and they'll be, yes. you know, making notes on them or, or doing ciphers or, or something. So the fact that there were these, the, the, the paper, that there were these pre-bound journals available, all of that, it, 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 it absolutely uh, makes a difference in the, the, prop, the likelihood that these uh, diaries will be produced. Yeah. Technology plus uh, universal basic education right right yeah paper paper just occurred to me as an example but yeah yeah you know uh, launched by pat's mention of technology and none of these are externalities to the transformation that we're interested in there's not some uh, some real underneath essence that's that that they're there they are it you know that 
that the education revolution and the introduction of grammar schools and essentially the destruction of the monastic tradition, or at least the, in certain parts of Europe, the destruction of the monastic tradition and the following transformation in education and its implications. Right. That's not a surface, res that's not an externality to the history of the self, right? That is right. part of it. And sure. Getting, and, and when we're working with students, getting them to see that that is transformative of the most basic questions is sort of what... Right. I want to turn our attention to um, a, a, another kind of question, and that is something that is important both in, in the historiography and I think of, uh, you know, Michel, Michel Foucault's um, mid-70s contribution of, you know, the history of sexuality one in that book, namely overturning or making us question, you know, narratives we had about inhibitions in the past and and uh, the way we position the Victorians relative to ourselves, relative to the present. But I want to extend it beyond that question, and that is how uh, your research or research has challenged or dealt with overarching cultural narratives of sexual repression and liberation. Because mm -hmm. by my reading of current discourse, this is extremely important to how we are still talking about sex and how we're talking about sexual things like sexual identity to put it in you know quotes which is so important to the politics of sex is is the narrative of right. repression and liberation and it's a particularly in my mind at least i think it's a it's a particularly clear example of, of whig history at work in that you know we do have this this uh, pretty linear – when I say we, I, I tend to mean kind of the, the popular uh, opinion uh, that, that's around. You know, when I uh, talk to people, I think there's, there's a, a, a notion that Victorian era, people very repressed, then there's this opening up, opening up. And, uh, you know, for the 20th century, of course, there's, there is this, this clear narrative that there's this – a uh, sexual revolution explosion that takes place somewhere. Sixties are always the sixties almost stands for that. In yeah, North they, they always you say sixties, and I think again, just like when we were talking earlier about setting aside some of these, some of the language that we uh, commonly use around sexuality, that if we can at least bracket notions about uh, progress or uh, sexual liberation. When uh, uh, for the for the 20th century, I, I you've read my book, you know I don't I don't see uh, the 60s as somehow a, a particular turning point in sexuality for American youth. Uh, I, I see uh, the the real turning point as as coming uh, a few decades earlier and having to do with a with a, a systemic change in the, the social organization of, of sexuality among youth that that I see uh, pretty pervasive and long term the the trend that that brings us all these young women you know having sex uh, I mean certainly there are changes in the 60s but I think that the more fundamental ones uh, come earlier I also you know thinking in terms of this this notion of liberation, through sexuality, I think that relates 
directly back to our discussion about identity because sex, sex acts for uh, certainly for American youth get wrapped up in how they're doing this project of, of uh, creating the self. So th- there's almost a one-to-one correspondence in the minds of, of many people with uh, one's willingness to engage in sex and one's, you know, emergence as a, I don't know, as, a, as an integrated human being or as a, as a distinctive self. That's a cultural artifact. I don't think there's, there's anything. That, so much for celibacy. Yeah, right. Right. You know, it becomes a sickness. How about that? Cel- right. Uh, yeah. Chastity, which, which yeah. had, you know, been the identity, the, the identifying mark of a, of a true manly man and, the late 19th century in the middle class, at least, you know, by the late 20th century, it's, it's the mark of, like you say, a, a kind of a must a be hiding deep. something else. Yes. Or, the you know, yeah. Virgin. Yeah, right. Exactly what I was thinking about. Okay. Uh, uh, mandatory sexual experience, I think itself becomes a, a kind of cage that it, again, it, it's so much a part of American culture. I, it's hard to, to back out of that, to not think within that framework. And Kim, how would you add, or what uh, would you add to that? Just, yeah, the, uh, the the idea that we can teach sexual history as a narrative of repression and liberation, I, I think anyone working in the field would see that as totally inadequate. Um, you know, it really doesn't doesn't match. You know, we get rid of it very quickly. You know, it really doesn't match what we see, and that's another example of why it's really helpful to take quite a long-range approach to the subject and and look to the ancient world look to the medieval world perhaps particularly the medieval i mean we kind of perhaps we expect the ancients to be a little bit i don't know freer in their sexual expressions their artwork and so on we kind of we kind of got used to the fact that you're going to see some pretty uh out there stuff in some of the, the, the art of the ancient world and some of their poetry. But then you get to the medieval and you think, well, you know, the Catholic Church is in charge, right? So obviously, you know, celibacy is, celibacy again, you know, celibacy is held up as, as the ideal, not for, for men, but also for women. The monastic life, the best way to get into heaven is just to avoid sex altogether or give it up if you have been sexually active. Um, so you think of, of the medieval period. Well, that's, you know, that's a good contender for an age of repression. But actually, then you start to look at it more closely, read the sources, look at the mm-hmm. artwork, and you quickly find it, you know, it's not the case at all. Yeah, they had very strong, um, sexual morality based in concepts of sin and fear of eternal damnation. You know, it, th- these were really very real concerns for them, but that didn't stop them talking about sex or representing it visually. So um, the idea that it's it's somehow a taboo or off limits, I think, is completely in, inaccurate for thinking about the medieval period. Um, a, a good way to shock your, your, your undergraduate students in a, in a lecture is to show them some, some slides of uh, some photographs of carvings that appear on churches uh, in the mm. you know, 12th, 13th centuries, Romanesque churches, uh, in um, France and England, Ireland, mm-hmm. Ex- incredibly explicit uh, nudity, um, sex acts, you know, all kinds of uh, yeah, explicit representations that you wouldn't expect to find in a church. Um, and, of course, there, there's a whole lot that's been damaged and removed, you know, since then. So mm-hmm. medieval people would have seen 
sex on display a lot, a, a lot more than we we give them credit for. But it would have been, it was there for a purpose. It wasn't just for for titillation. It may have titillated some people, but that wasn't its primary purpose. It's there to teach a moral message um, about what not to do, I guess, and uh, uh, dangers of damnation and so on. But you know, so it's it's you know breaking apart those those assumptions, those uh, preconceptions about oh, you know, everyone was repressed until the 60s and then, you know, since then we've all been so open and, and liberal and it's just not it's just not the case at all. And, you know, if you if you want to talk about you know, the 18th century or particularly amongst um, aristocrats and, you know, uh, say the 18th, early 19th century, you know, they they were as debauched as any group of people you might, <laughs> you might want to study. So, yeah, there's... And, the, old, the old narrative just doesn't hold at all. Right. And, and, and we, don't, we don't identify them. Tip, I, I don't think we typically identify them with some kind of liberatory, um, you know, movement or, or, or something. I mean, they're, right. uh, um, I, I, guess, I guess you could if you're really devoted to that narrative. You could say, well, there, those people were liberated. But, well, um, and, that, and, and, and one thing that I thought of when you were speaking about can the Middle Ages stand for an age of repression, right, to keep that thesis alive, is that I was thinking not even just in terms of sexual repression, but the notion of repressed emotions versus expressed emotions. And that's, and, and maybe one of the things we can, that this kind of work can deliver is to understand that taking that dualism and pacing it at the center of a, of the culture, making that extremely important, might tell us more about ourselves than it will about distant places in the past. And I, one example is just apocryphal plays from the Middle Ages that deal with all sorts of issues around sex and birth and death and other things. You would repression is not the is not the word that you're going to use. It's <laughs> I mean this yeah. stuff is so full of yeah. it's so emotive, it's so yeah. expressive yeah. that it shocks. Modern notions of propriety and self-control. It does. It does. Yeah. But then the interpretation is uh, then the fun part, you know, trying to figure out, well, you know, what what is this explicit material doing there, scatological or sexual? You know, you yeah. want to read the, um, you know, the Fabio coming out of 12th, 13th century France, you know, that the, the language that's used there, you know, um, all kinds of lewd terms in French, but it was lewd at the time, you know, yeah. um, and it's lewd now, but it, that was their entertainment. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it's partly recognizing that, it's partly recognizing that past cultures were complicated too, okay? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there might have been a grand narrative or, you know, a, a, a dominant uh, controlling force such as the Catholic Church for the medieval period, perhaps for the 19th century, it's the rise of uh, psychiatry, I'm not sure, or the state, you know, those things in conjunction with one another. Um, so there, there will be powers, uh, that, that are exerting their, their pressures upon people, but there's also going to be a great deal of diversity as well. And there's a whole lot that, that can be said and is relatively okay within, with any given culture. Yeah. And, and I think you make this uh, point, uh, in, uh, sex before sexuality, um, Sometimes it is really valuable, and one contribution we can make is to point out maybe an important structural difference. It seems to have a wide-ranging effect, 
without oversimplifying it, an example I'm thinking about is the connection between the consolidation of church property and rules about uh, celibacy, particularly okay. how it disrupts yeah. right. problems with inheritance and diffusion mm-hmm. of wealth. Yeah. Now, that to me is an extremely, without being an economic reductionist, I think sure. to ignore that uh, yeah. from, from someone who is oriented toward the history of ideas and culture, as I am, and keywords mm-hmm. and other things, that's where, where my love is, to not recognize that that had to have been just a critical, how could sure. it not? It's so right. on the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's not forget economics. Yeah. When yeah. we write these histories and, and just on that point, you know, um, something that I think we tried to emphasize in the book that, you know, is probably unexpected to a lot of people is that to, to be married was, or to keep a, a concubine, you know, a, a live in lover was, was, I don't know if it was the norm, but it was certainly extremely common for Catholic priests up to about the 13th century, you know, um, wasn't necessarily smiled upon by those uh, those at the top of the hierarchy, but it was very much very widely practiced and only really stamped out in the early 13th century. Uh, um, at which point, you know, uh, there were priests who still had their concubines, but um, they they were tolerated a lot less. Um, but it, before that, it you know they have children, their children might inherit their benefices. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, there's so much. There's so much of our our history that we're still just starting to to learn about, and um, we have to make it better known. I think. Yeah, certainly agree with that. Um, you know, so much of so much of history. I mean, I, I think it gets lost in, in these survey courses where we have to where, where we think we have to cover so much. But you know, I think kind of. Knocking down some of these these notions and, and letting students, um, you know, open up to uh, to some possibilities is is a, is, a, is is as valuable, if not more valuable, than just you know making sure they um, you know they know um, I don't know when the uh, Louisiana Purchase took place. Sure. <laughs> That's right. So it's more than trivia. It's, there's a, a larger sort of orientation. Getting them to Ask questions. That's our primary. Yeah. I think getting them to think historically right. and, and have the tools to, to really follow through has, in my mind, uh, uh, at least priority over, you know, packing in some some more, uh, uh, you know, some more details about. Um, yeah. Well, I'm looking at my watch and we, we have been um, uh, going uh, going strong for, uh, um, oh, I don't know, about an hour, I think, or. Uh, we're coming it, it, up on that. I tell you what, this has been this has been so much fun. <laughs> uh, I've I've really enjoyed the you know participating and but um, listening yeah. to, to Kim and to you. Pat. You know it it's um, I feel the same way. It's such a pleasure uh, and uh, to 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 find you know books that you're interested in to read them to learn about something new and then just to call people up and you're so gracious to. To give your time and uh, to go out on a limb and, and do something different, I'm I'm very grateful. It's been, it's great fun for me. Thank you both so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for for making it possible. Yeah, thanks for thinking thinking of putting it together, and I can't wait to see John's book. It's been really nice to meet you both. 
thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.